This past Monday was November 11th, Veterans Day. I'd like to take a moment to recognize my brother, father, uncle, and aunt, all retired from the armed forces. Also my grandfather and the men he served with, the men and women I served with, and all our nation's veterans, and those presently serving. I honor your service, and I honor your sacrifices. Welcome to the air war in Europe. First off, my apologies. Last time I posted an episode, I said I'd be back in two weeks, and that was two months ago. It's been a busy late summer and early autumn for me. It started over Labor Day weekend and has only recently let up. I overcommitted my time and something had to give. Hence, no episodes since late August. Last two months have made me realize that my idealistic schedule of releasing one episode per week is rather more unrealistic. Life, huh? Going forward, I will publish episodes as frequently as I can, but a set schedule is just not in the cards right now. As always, if you notice I've mispronounced a name or misstated a date, if you have a story from the air war that you think needs to be told, send an email to airwareurope at gmail.com. You can also follow along on Twitter. That handle is at airwareinyurope. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. If you like what you hear, please leave a review. It helps boost the signal of the podcast to listeners looking for content. Thank you. On August 3rd, 1944, my grandfather flew his fifth mission to the Manzel Aircraft Factory near Friedrichshafen, Germany. Takeoff was at 0606, bombs away at 1112, and they landed at 1420. Total time in the air, 7 hours, 10 minutes. Operating altitude, 23,600 feet. Bomb load, 10 500-pound bombs. From the combat diary of nose gunner, Staff Sergeant George Kroll. Looks like the vacation is over. Took off at 7 a.m. for Friedrichshafen, Germany. It briefed us for a roughie, but everything turned out okay, at least for my group. We got by with just moderate and very inaccurate flak. The groups behind us caught hell with flak and also fighters. Four B-24s were shot down, one after another, by ME-109s. However, P-51s were hot on their tails. The target was the Manzel Aircraft Factory. The robot rockets were supposedly manufactured there. Radio operator Sergeant Jerome Laurie recorded the mission thus. This raid counted double and was the easiest double mission I've pulled so far. We flew straight up the Adriatic Sea, then over the Italian Alps. We didn't pass far from Venice. I guess we were pretty near the first to hit the target. We had about six to eight-tenths coverage of clouds, which really helped a lot. The flak was heavy, moderate, and inaccurate. We managed to pick up a small flak hole in the tail. Coming back, the group in back of us were attacked by fighters, and we saw four planes go down, our planes, bombers, in the space of about four minutes. You really have to keep your eyes open because if you don't see those fighters in time, it's just tough luck. Since we've gotten into this group, it hasn't lost many planes. It did have a jinx on it up to the time we came. And my grandfather's diary entry for the day reads, On the morning of 3 August, we were briefed to raid the Manzel Aircraft Factory at Friedrichshafen, Germany. It's right on the shores of Lake Constance, opposite Switzerland. The takeoff was made at 0705 
and we proceeded on course. At about 10 o'clock, we saw the city of Canals, Venice. Venice is an island in the backwaters of a harbor. After Venice came the Po Valley and then the mountains. The mountains had a certain rugged kind of beauty. There were lovely green valleys that looked very pleasant and peaceful. It would be wonderful if the inhabitants were as peaceful as the countryside. At 11.13, our bombs were away. We had a camera, and I saw several hits and near misses in the water. The flak was moderate and not too accurate. All the ships left the target unscathed. We rallied right sharply and headed for home. About 20 minutes from the target, our tail gunner suddenly shouted, B-24 going down in flames at 7 o'clock. I looked and saw it. As quickly as can be imagined, I saw three more B-24s going down. It wasn't until after I saw the ships go down and I saw four ME-109s. We found out later that the 465th bomb group lost eight planes to enemy fighters. We returned over the same route and landed at 1420. As far as we were concerned, it was a lousy mission. Watch out for fighters. There's more of them. One o'clock high. When I left off, the 8th Bomber Command, which later became known as the 8th Air Force, was bending toward breaking under the weight of missions and losses without replacements. A large portion of its strength was reassigned to North Africa, as were the men and material who would have otherwise reinforced the 8th. Through 1940 and 41, the battle in North Africa between the Axis and British and Commonwealth forces swung back and forth, one side then the other gaining and losing ground. The Italians had invaded Egypt from their Libyan colony in early September 1940. After slight initial gains, the Italian advance stalled when their commander ordered his forces to dig in. The British counterattacked in the first week of December, and by January, they had driven into the eastern Libya and taken the port city of Tobruk. At the request of Italian dictator Benito Mussolini, the Germans sent the Africa Corps under the command of Erwin Rommel to Tripoli in February. Rommel began offensive operations in March, isolating Tobruk and driving into Egypt. Through the rest of 1941, both sides traded offensives until June when Axis forces, freshly supplied and reinforced, drove into Egypt, advancing within 90 miles of Alexandria. They were stopped at El Alamein in the end of June. While the Allied forces were being driven back toward El Alamein, 23 American B-24s under the command of Colonel Harry Halverson arrived in Egypt. The Halverson Detachment, codenamed HALPRO for Halverson Project, was originally slated to fly through North Africa on its way to the China-Burma-India theater. A Japanese offensive in China made the plan temporarily untenable, so HALPRO was retasked. In episode one, I mistakenly said that the first American bombing of Axis targets in Europe occurred on June 29th, and the first official mission was flown on July 4th. In fact, HALPRO flew the first American raid on Europe. Between 2230 and 2300 hours on June 11th, 1942, 
13 B-24Ds took off from Fayyid, Egypt, and navigated independently to bomb the oil refineries at Plesti, Romania. One plane bombed the Romanian port of Constanta and headed back. The other 12 hit Ploesti, inflicting little notable damage. Depending on which source you read, Halverson and three others landed at Ramadi or Habania in Iraq. Five B-24s landed at other locations in Iraq, two in Syria, and four landed and were interned in neutral Turkey. The mission results were underwhelming at best and prompted General Dwight Eisenhower to comment that the raid did something to dispel the illusion that big planes could win the war. Still, the mere completion of the mission was taken as an encouraging development. On June 15th, Halpro was tasked to hit an Italian fleet bearing down on a British convoy headed for Malta. Though the damage to the Italian fleet was slight, the attack made them turn back for port. Halverson requested permission to continue his original mission to the CBI theater, but with the Africa Corps driving toward Cairo, his B-24s were the only long-range bombers in the Middle East with the range to attack German supply lines. So Halpro stayed in Egypt. Through the last weeks of June, Halverson's B-24s hit Axis targets in Libya to deny Rommel the communications and supplies he needed to continue his advance. The desperate situation prompted the Allies to create an air force in the Middle East. General Louis Brereton was reassigned from India to take command. Brereton brought with him seven B-17s of the 9th Squadron, 7th Bomb Group, who had been fighting the Japanese from Java and India. The Brereton Detachment joined Halpro on missions beginning on July 2nd. Thus, the U.S. Middle East Air Force became the immediate predecessor to the 9th Air Force. While the U.S. MEAF continued to fight, three complete groups were being rushed from the U.S. to North Africa. The ground elements of the 98th Bomb Group, Heavy, and the 12th Bomb Group, Medium, and the 57th Fighter Group, sailed from New York on July 16th, arriving in the Gulf of Suez on August 16th. With the new groups arriving in the Nile Delta area, space at airfields became scarce. Robert Wilson, a member of the ground element of the 12 bomb group, recounted, We all started to follow an Englishman who had a lantern. He was supposed to put us in tents for the night. After walking about 100 yards, we arrived at a tent. The limey looked inside and muttered, The bloody thing is full. We'll have to go on to the next one. We walked another hundred yards or so. The same thing was repeated. After this happened the third time, we all set our barracks bags down, rolled out our two blankets, and slept under the stars. The last we heard of our man, he was still muttering, The bloody thing is full. We'll have to go on to the next one. Between the 17th and 30th of July, the air echelons of the 98th Bomb Group left Florida and flew the southern route through Brazil to West Africa and on to Palestine. On August 1, seven 98th Group B-24s went into action. By the 7th, the full group was in theater. Lieutenant Henry Chisholm, the bombardier on Lil de Iser of the 345th Squadron, summed up the 98th's early missions. 
12 August, first mission. We went for Bessema True. We were at 15,000 feet, cold as hell and black as pitch, and there wasn't any moon. We couldn't find the target, and the Germans were smart. They wouldn't light their searchlights and would stop their anti-aircraft fire when we got close. I didn't even know they were shooting shells at us. Dropped five 1,000-pound bombs. No one in the flight saw the target. 14 August. Went on our second mission. Twelve liberators on a daylight raid on Tobruk. We went in at 25,000 feet in elements of three with ships for targets. We chose the largest ship and made a run on it. There was a lot of AA. The ship was burning when we left. Some 300 enemy pursuits stationed in that area, but not one made a pass at our liberators. 21 August. One formation took off at 2.30, sighted the convoy at 5.59, reported it to the lead ship, which decided to look further. A few minutes later, we got the radio report. I'm being attacked. We sighted two ME-110s, then a B-24 came by under us with two engines on fire, dense white smoke pouring out. I could hear the tail guns firing, grabbed one of my guns and looked out the window, saw an ME hanging there well within range, tried to swing on him, but the gun wouldn't go that far. Looked for the B-24 in trouble, saw him about 10,000 feet below, headed for land with an ME on his tail. The next time I looked, he wasn't there. The gunners in the waist said he hit the sea, and then we were seven. We flew a course along the island of Crete, finally turned, started searching for the ships we'd passed over. Just three minutes before dark, we sighted them, two warships, two merchant vessels. The attack started. Our elements circled and watched while the others attacked. Then it was our turn. We swept in at 14,000 feet, began our run on the ship. Looking the, through the bomb site, I could see the ship shooting at us. That's a funny feeling to watch the flak, tracers, and fireballs leave the ship and come straight up at you. The five bombs went away. I watched over the bomb site, and there was a flash as the fifth found the target. We circled and headed for home. The mission covered 2,000 miles. In late August, Rommel went on the offensive again. Realizing the continued attacks on his supply lines would soon destroy all hope of victory for the Africa Corps. On the evening of the 30th, the Germans attacked the British line. They were aided the next day by a sandstorm which kept Allied bombers grounded, but British armor stopped Rommel's panzers, and by September 2nd, the attack had stalled. They tried again on the 4th, but Allied ground and air forces broke his assault. Through the rest of September and into October, harassment of the German lines and supply shipping continued, and American airmen concentrated on training for the inevitable British attack to drive Rommel out of Egypt. On the night of October 19th, the Allies opened an air offensive intended to destroy Axis power, particularly their air reconnaissance capability, disrupt their supply and communication lines, and break the morale of the ground troops. American heavy bombers flew as far as Crete to hit German airfields. The offensive was launched on the night of October 23rd. When the attacks commenced, the Allies had 605 fighters, 254 light and medium bombers, and 61 heavy bombers available for missions. 
The Axis had 347 fighters, 72 dive bombers, and 171 medium bombers. The decisive fighting occurred between November 2nd and 4th as British tanks pushed into the German lines, supported by Allied bombers and fighters. The diary entry of a German artillery officer underscores the effectiveness of Allied air superiority. Where are our fighters, our Stukas and AA? Can't see a thing of them. Tommy comes every quarter of an hour with 18 heavy bombers. While the battle for Egypt was raging through the summer and early fall of 1942, the Allies were planning Operation Torch, the invasion of French North Africa, to both open a second front against Rommel and neutralize the Vichy French forces, thus making the Mediterranean safe for Allied naval forces to operate. Allied planners identified Algiers and Oran in French Algeria and Casablanca in Morocco as key targets. Axis airfields in Sicily and Sardinia posed an unacceptable threat to a landing in Tunisia, ideal for cutting off Rommel's supply lines in Tripoli, so Bona in eastern Algeria was proposed as an option. But the Allies only had enough resources for three landings. General Dwight Eisenhower, commander of Operation Torch, favored the eastern option, a landing at Bona, but Allied command was concerned that Torch would prompt Spain to forsake neutrality and join the Axis. Control of Casablanca gave the Allies greater ability to respond to the anticipated closure of the Straits of Gibraltar should this happen. So it was decided that the Western option would be taken. The Allies wanted to avoid fighting with Vichy French forces in Morocco and Algeria, hoping that they would defect. General Mark Clark, one of Eisenhower's commanders, traveled by submarine to North Africa and on October 21st met with senior French officers to convince them to come over to the Allied cause. On the night of November 7th, a pro-Ally French commander attempted to stage a coup in Morocco, intending to surrender to the Allied forces landing before dawn the next day. The coup was unsuccessful, and when the invasion landed before dawn, Vichy coastal defenses engaged the invaders before being silenced by naval gunfire. At Oran, French troops fought doggedly against the invading allies, but the port was surrendered on the 9th. Operation Torch was the first major airborne assault carried out by the allies. 39 C-47 Skytrains flew from England more than 1,500 miles over Spain to drop paratroopers from the 509th Parachute Infantry Regiment at two airfields near Oran. Bad weather and communication difficulties scattered the formation, and the majority of the planes landed on a dry lake bed without ever dropping their passengers. In the early hours of the 8th, French resistance fighters staged a successful coup in Algiers, taking the telephone exchange, radio station, the governor's house, and the headquarters of the French 19th Corps. When the landing craft came ashore later that morning, French opposition was minimal. The air support for Allied forces in western North Africa was provided by units that had been taken from the 8th Air Force, while the 8th was bleeding men and planes over western Europe. Most of the units that made up what would eventually become the 12th Air Force had seen action with the 8th. 
The torch landings were supported by U.S. Navy planes because the Army Air Force units could not operate until air bases could be secured in Morocco and Algeria. Once this was accomplished, veteran groups began making the flight from England, and new groups took the southern ferry route through Brazil to North Africa. Even though men and machines were prioritized for the North African campaign, the industrial might of the United States had not yet reached anything near its peak production, and the lack of parts was always a limiting factor on the Air Force's ability to get planes in the air. Planes were often cannibalized, stripped for parts, in order to keep other aircraft flying. For the 98th Bomb Group of the 9th Air Force, this resulted in a novel opportunity, described by the commanding officer of the 344th Bomb Squadron and later commander of the group, Lieutenant Colonel John R. Killer Kane. When we flew overseas, we carried what was referred to as the flight kit, consisting of a collection of spare parts guesstimated by the group CO and his staff. These parts were scattered throughout the airplanes of the flight. This small supply was our only source of replacement parts for a long time. Although the RAF had some liberator parts at a depot in Palestine, few, if any, were available to us. The Army Air Force answer was to fly combat planes with combat crews overseas to be cannibalized. The planes, not the crews. I believe the 98th received five of these cannibals while in Palestine, all going to Group HQ at Ramat David. Soon these planes were skeletons standing around the airport. One warrant officer named Cook got permission from the group CO to build one airplane out of the remaining parts. With the help of various mechanics, warrant officer Cook soon had an airplane with variously colored wings and empennage, some original design controls, gas lines made of ordinary water pipe, and an insignia consisting of a bitch with some off-color pups. When I took over the group at Fayyid, Egypt, the mongrel was listed in flying condition, but seldom flew, and was on no HQ list of airplanes. When we moved into the western desert and set up our tents at Gambut, I first flew the mongrel and was agreeably surprised by her performance. Later, when we settled in for protracted operations at Benina, Maine, east of Benghazi, we began to fly the mongrel to and from Cairo, ferrying crews on leave, laundry, supplies, mail, what have you. She usually carried over 30 men and unweighed poundage of freight. As far as I ever knew, the mongrel was not listed on the roster of aircraft, and no mention was ever made of her by the 9th or 15th Air Force. The mongrel went on to Italy and continued to serve her yeoman duty to the group and squadrons. Late in 1944, Colonel Julian Blyer flew her home to the States and landed at Langley Field. When the officials had one look at her, with horrified indignation, they condemned the faithful old mongrel as unfit to fly. With that, she went into limbo, but not from the memories of the men and officers of the 98th Bomb Group. Through the end of 1942 and into early 1943, the 9th and 12th Air Forces supported the ground campaign, operating in a largely tactical role. The Axis forces, having lost their nominal ally, the Vichy French, built up forces in Tunisia. 
As such, enemy shipping in the Mediterranean and Axis-controlled port facilities remained a high-priority target for bombers and fighters alike. Additionally, the Allies began hitting targets in Sicily, Sardinia, and mainland Italy in preparation for the forthcoming invasion of Europe's soft underbelly. 